You're listening to a Curry Mile podcast. Deadly. The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Curry Mile newspaper. I'm trapped by this diabetes. I honestly am trapped. And I, I don't, I, I can't see the light at the tunnel at the moment to get, get past it. And that's what I'm hoping is that I'm going to get some quality of life back because I haven't had that for a long time. I'm just over, over it. I just, I just hate what, what it's doing to me. It's just making making me so depressed. Just I'm over giving myself needles every day, every night. If I can get a control, that means I can take a bit more. I can take a better control of my life. At the moment, I'm just like it's just like I'm living for the needles. Welcome to episode six of the Black Room News podcast. I'm Nick Payton. And that was the voice of Margot Grimes from Burke in New South Wales talking about her experience with diabetes. In this very special episode of The Black Room, I'll be having a yarn with Gomorrah man Ray Kelly about his involvement in a new three-part series premiering on SBS on Wednesday, October 13, called Australia's Health Revolution with Dr. Michael Mosley. But before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation, where this podcast is being recorded today. I also acknowledge and pay my respects to all ancestors and elders. Now, the latest edition of the Kurimau newspaper is on sale today. And in this edition, there's some great stories about what mob are doing to take care of their health during the COVID pandemic. But one important area of health affecting mob that many people don't have all the facts on is diabetes. Now, we know that type 2 diabetes can be fatal but it also affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people disproportionately, as much as four times the rate of non-Indigenous Australians. And now, due to statistics such as this, a growing group of experts is calling for massive change from health authorities in their approach to this epidemic. Featuring Ray Kelly, Australia's health revolution with Dr. Michael Mosley, the fellas join forces to help eight brave Australians reverse their type two diabetes. Working alongside Ray, Dr. Mosley puts his body on the line to demonstrate the latest science and to show just how quickly you can eat your way into and out of ill health. Now, it's no surprise Ray was approached to take part in this new show. Ray Kelly is one of Australia's leading health professionals, and with more than 30 years' experience in the health and sports industries, he's an accredited exercise physiologist. He holds a Master of Teaching and a Bachelor of Research, where he focuses on the reversal of type 2 diabetes in the Indigenous community. He's currently completing his PhD, and in Ray's experience, Indigenous communities have unique obstacles to health. By guiding discussions, he assists local health staff and community in identifying obstacles and then designing localised strategies. He was employed as a trainer in the first two seasons of The Biggest Loser Australia, where he was given one contestant each year. He achieved the perfect record with both contestants winning the competition in consecutive years. 
Ray has also written two books on weight loss, Winners Do What Losers Don't and Full Plate Less Weight. Ray is also a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a guest lecturer at the University of New South Wales. Ray Kelly, thanks for coming into the Black Room. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Ray, look, it's so good to have you here in the Black Room. Now, we have just released another edition of the Mail newspaper. And before I get started on your involvement in Australia's Health Revolution with Dr. Michael Mosley, which is coming up on SBS, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your mob and where you're from? Yeah, mate. Proud Gomeroy man from the Corindo area, so the, the southern region of the Kamilaroi Nation. Um, yeah, I, I was actually born, though, uh, in Darug area down in Sydney and grew up around Mount Druitt for the first 10 or 11 years of my life and then sort of moved up back up home and finished my schooling. But, you know, moved to Sydney as a young adult and live on Dark and Jungland now. But, man, just uh, that at home, I, I always get the tingles when I go over those uh, Liverpool ranges. Yeah, uh, and, and yep. see those mountains up there. So um, that—that's my home there. And so Darug, that is Western Sydney. That's right. Yep, because I was born on Darug Country in Blacktown. That's it. I was born at uh, Blacktown Hospital and grew up in Mount Druitt. Oh, no way. There you go. Oh, Westmead baby myself. Um, that is too deadly. Um, Ray, thanks for letting our listeners know a little bit about your mob um, and, and where that's actually located. Um, so look, it's just so deadly to have you in the black room giving us your expertise today on a very important um, issue that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are facing uh, in Australia today. Now, Ray, we know that Indigenous people have so many more health issues as compared to their non-Indigenous counterparts. And We've just heard that audio clip of Margot, who was involved in your uh, Too Deadly for Diabetes program. And look, it, it was harrowing to hear in her voice at the start of uh, her undertaking the program. You could, you could hear the pain in her voice. You could hear, um, you know, she wasn't going real well with her experience having diabetes. So... Before we get to Margo, we're going to talk about Margo a little bit later on in the podcast. What is the situation for Indigenous people at the moment uh, living with diabetes? Look, well, mate, it's it's pretty frustrating because it's getting worse and worse every year, and and we can sort of rattle off the general stats of three to four times more likely to have diabetes now, but that means nothing when you consider uh, that it takes yeah, eight to twenty years for a diagnosis to come about sometimes. So we've got a tsunami of diabetes and the comorbidities that go with it coming in the future. And the most frustrating part of this is that it's both reversible and preventable, but people aren't getting access to that information. Uh, but look, you know, the, um, the issues surrounding that are you know, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, even uh, dementia and we're seeing people diagnosed at a younger age. You know, I'm recently dealing, um, you know, with a seven-year-old who's diagnosed and, you know, it's just, you know, what sort of chance do they have if they don't have the right support and guidance? That's right. And that, and that that's such a young age, Ray, for, for a child to be then dealing with, hey, I've got diabetes. And then not only for the child, but then the family to be you know, having to, to help as well. Yeah, and what you'll usually find with someone that has it that young is there's probably a genetic predisposition as well. And we probably should start by just sort of mentioning that and why Aboriginal people, well, the, the genetic factors around why Aboriginal people might be more predisposed. You know, some people that are lazy with research 
will throw up that uh, it's ancient genes and all that sort of stuff. But the fact is, it's just that we carry our weight around our organs at a lower BMI. So it means that, you know, if if if, if you've got uh, one fellow who's Aboriginal and he's 80 kilos and you've got another guy who's non-Aboriginal and he's 80 kilos, well, the Aboriginal guy could put on 10 kilos and start to get type 2 diabetes. Uh, and the other guy could put on 40 kilos and not be at risk. Yes. So it's just that rather than carrying the weight, a lot of weight under the skin, it actually forms more around that midsection where we see, you know, the skinny legs, big gut kind of thing. But the good thing about that is that um, it, it's easy to reverse through weight losses so long as you get it in early. But um, as I mentioned, you know, the, the communication around this hasn't been great. Um, you know, this, and that, that's where the show we're doing is going to show this, but what people need to know is we've been doing this for years, and and you know Aboriginal communities you know, in regional and remote uh, New South Wales have been pushing this through, working hard and really refining it, and you know they've been reaping the benefits just like Margot did. This was news to me, Ray, because I didn't really understand that diabetes could actually be reversed. I thought once you had diabetes, it was something you lived with for life. Mate, and you're not alone. And this is the frustrating thing is that the research is there. And this is why mm. I'm doing my PhD because I want to get this information out faster and show what can be done. And I know, you know, Aboriginal people, we usually get all this sort of stuff last. So I want to make sure we're first. Yep. And it's, you know, most people believe that. And when I go into a new location, I'll have health professionals who will question that, that it's possible <laughs> to be reversed. But the thing is, like, when you're first diagnosed, the first thing your GP is going to do is refer you to a dietitian and a physiologist to change your lifestyle. So it's the first line of treatment. The problem being that we just haven't been getting that weight loss in the past, so we haven't seen the results. But you know, research out of the UK shows that uh, you know if you can get in within the first six years, you know, what it's about seventy-five percent of people who lose ten kilos or more will get off all medication altogether. Wow, that is huge. And, it, and it's, it's surprising that that isn't kind of common knowledge. Well, look, with Australia's health revolution, with you and Dr. Michael Mosley coming up, hopefully that awareness will be spread throughout our communities, right? <laughs> it's going to get people talking, all right. But yeah. that's the good thing about community too. And, and that, that's how I, I get a lot of my work throughout the, the medical services. These days, it's usually that curry grapevine, you know, like people talking and, and seeing someone you know, at a catch-up and saying, what have you been doing? And then yep. they let them know what they've been doing. And, and the good thing is the results come really quick, so it's, it's quite dramatic. Um, but, yeah, look, we've just got to raise awareness and, um, and and get that change happening because people are just dying too young. Like, And, and, and not only that, you think of that seven-year-old I'm talking about, but there's pe- many. There, there wouldn't be many high schools that wouldn't have someone that's at least got pre-diabetes or diabetes, you know, throughout a lot of communities. So... This is a starting point. This is probably the healthiest those people are going to be in their life unless things change, unless our treatments change and our support changes. Absolutely. So they're looking at like a whole adulthood, their whole adulthood being on medication. Mm. And that's that's what I thought it was, you know, and, and constantly having to um, do the do the quick jab to check your blood sugar levels and that was a daily thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, and, and nowadays, if you're diagnosed today, they estimate that 50% of all people um, who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes will be on insulin within uh, 10 years. And that's one thing to differentiate mm. here. We're talking about type 2 diabetes, not type 1. Type 1 
is an autoimmune disease where the pancreas doesn't work too well. And that's usually what we used to call juvenile onset, but it can happen later in life now. But type 2 is more uh, a lifestyle-related thing where you know it's caused by that buildup of, of fat around the organs. Uh, a lot of people too. A lot of people think also that you know if you're on tablets, you've got type two, and if you're on insulin, you're on type you, you got type one. But that's because like when we were younger, you know, people that were on insulin, they they were type one because people with type two got it later in life. Right. Uh, and then they never progressed on it, but because people get it so much younger now, they do progress onto insulin. So. About 85% of people with diabetes will have actual type 2 diabetes, which is the reversible one. I was going to say, because would you almost say that the most common type that when people hear um, that somebody's got diabetes, it would be the type 2 diabetes? Yeah, it's, it's that, that's 100%. Yeah. So yeah. It's between that 85% to 90% um, yeah, rate there. Um, and But it, but it, is, it is climbing as well. Mm. I mean, the, the main thing to do is... Um, speak to your doctor if you're unsure which one you've got. So Ray, let's jump into the new uh, three-part TV series uh, due to premiere uh, next Wednesday, October 13, Australia's Health Revolution, um, which you are featured in alongside um, the very well-known Dr. Michael Mosley. How did you become involved in the program? (laughs) Well, yeah, a number of years ago, I realized, look, the only way to get change is to get outcomes, to get results. So rather than trying to argue the point, because I'd had meeting with you know government people and, and stuff over the years and, and funding bodies and, and it just wasn't changing. People just didn't believe it was going to be possible. So I went to a Nacho conference a few years back, well, 2017, and I, um, I made a call out to the CEOs. I said, look, I, I want some communities to put their hands up that want to see a change. Uh, the, 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 more, the, the worse the environment, the better. <laughs> Yeah, we, we want to we want to show what can be done in these environments, and I was lucky to have Barbara Flick who was at Burke and uh, Christine Corby who was looking after uh, the CEO at uh, Walgett and uh, Bree Warren. I put their hand up, so we had those three towns, and so I was I was working across those three communities, and we we're getting pretty good results, and it was sort of making, I guess, a few headlines here and there, and um, even in those earlier days of the remote program. And I got a call from uh, the production company saying that, yeah, Michael's coming to Australia and would it be, would it, would it be okay if he could sort of meet up and have a look at what I do? So it was pretty much going to be probably about five minutes on the show probably. Right. Yep. And so um, I was obviously, yeah, look, I love Michael's work. He, he does a great job. He really is yeah, the benchmark for these sorts of medical type documentaries. So I was like, yeah, good. And we had a few zoom meetings and then they sort of said, well, you know more about this than anyone would you be interested in co-hosting? And so I went down for a screen test, met Michael, and it was just, we, we, we follow the same research. So, you know, it was pretty much where it sort of lined up uh, along the same lines with our research and knowledge. So it was an easy fit. So, yeah, it, it sort of was, I remember still the first uh, Zoom meeting was uh, Brewarrina AMS. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got to ask, what about when you went down to do the, the screen test? What, how, how did that feel? Were you a bit nervous? Yeah, well, look, I'd done a bit of TV before, but the, the good thing was, obviously, I was nervous because it was a good opportunity. Yeah. But it was it was more that, like, I knew I knew my stuff. So, like, this is something I eat, sleep, and breathe. You know, I'm always into the research. I'm into the practical applications. I've been doing it for many years. So I, I knew I knew the research. I just wasn't sure how I'd go with TV, with, with you know, the sort of personality they want on there. I'm more of a yep. knockabout bloke. Like I said, I, I grew up in you know, Mount Druid and, and um, 
the, the sort of upper Hutter region and New England sort of thing. And, uh, well, yeah, like I'm not your usual type. I'm, I might be a doctoral student, doctoral candidate, but I ride a Harley Davidson. I got tattoos. <laughs> so so I, I'm not your usual yeah, health professional. Well, look, um, I suppose there's, there's confidence in, in what you know as part of your field and, and your craft, but there's also then that confidence of taking that in, in front of a camera and, and having that confidence yeah. as well. So how did you find that? Did, do you feel you've, you've come across um, in a way that, that you're comfortable with? Yeah, look, yeah, obviously a little nervous at the start, but I For think sure. we just yep. sort of had the camera going and it was just, I just tried to forget the camera was there. You know, it was offside, off to the side a bit and we just sat on the lounge and had a chat about the research. And like I said, like we were, we know the same researchers, we, we read the same stuff. So it, it was pretty streamlined really. It, it was much easier than I was anticipating. Now, Ray, it's a three-part series. Um, so without giving too much away, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they should expect from the first step to the third? Yeah, look, we'll, we, we have a look at the research. We, we uh, speak to some of the key stakeholders like you know, Diabetes Australia and the Dietitians Association. And, and we also, I take Michael around and show him sort of the layout, I guess, of, of what's happening in Australia. Um, and uh, then we sort of have eight participants who you know, I put through a, uh, an eight-week program. So they range from having pre-diabetes right up to uh, one lady with 250 units of insulin a day. Oh, wow. So some complex yep. cases. Um, but, but I asked for that. You know, I wanted to make sure that we had some good challenges in there. Um, but, look, it, it's, it's great. I think it gives um, – I think there's something there's – there's a character in there for everyone. I think people will relate. To a range of the participants there, For especially sure. uh, given they've got type 2 diabetes. But it's a sort of show that even those that don't have diabetes that might think that they could possibly get it in the future, you've got to see this because the sooner you get into this after diagnosis, the, the easier it is to turn around. And look, they're just inspiring people. And you know, I, I didn't really get to choose them. So the production company chooses them and we just sort of deal with it like a like a normal sort of case when we see a, a, a patient but look it's um it's really exciting and and the outcomes i think people will find very inspiring uh because on the on the promo which is on at the moment um you see the camera pan past all of the delicious looking sweets and muffins and all the soft drink and all the cordial and stuff like that is sugar is sugar the one of the one of the biggest dangers when it comes to to diabetes look I, th I think it's sort of that's something that people know about so obviously it's a contributing factor because it, it raises your blood glucose levels but I, what a lot of people don't realize is it's the stuff that's normally advised that is probably keeping them on more medication so things like you know your breads rices and pastas and things like that that are putting your blood sugars up um, and, and it really comes from the premise that we've had in the past of teaching people how to live with diabetes rather than showing them how to actually turn it around. And, and I'm not saying everyone can reverse their diabetes because they definitely can't. Mm. But I'll tell you what, there's a, a lot of people who can and there's even more that can reduce their medications. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that um, w like everyone who works in health knows that it's going in the wrong direction and we need to do better. And I think this will also inspire health professionals to see what's possible. But what, what we're seeing in this show is exactly what we've been doing for years in community. So this whole program, so I got to 
um, design the program based around mine and Michael's program. So I put it all together and then I implement it with the patients. So I'm coaching them through. Right. And um, and it, it's very similar to what we do in the rural and remote programs where we've seen people like Margot have their success. And, and you know, I mean, we've just recently had a lady in Canamble who was, um, you know, did the program and started on the Monday and was on four injections of insulin a day and on the Friday she's off insulin. And, oh, wow. You know, definitely don't go following this sort of stuff without working with your doctor, though, because that's dangerous. But this is what I'm saying. This is what's possible for some people. And there's some people who are going to be taking medications for the rest of their life when they may not need to if they get the right help and support. The Koori Mail. Knowledge, culture, country, connection. How damaging is an average Aussie diet? Can a radical health regime reverse type 2 diabetes? Australia's Health Revolution with Dr Michael Mosley starts Wednesday 13th of October at 7.30 on SBS. A world of difference. Welcome back to the Black Room News Podcast. I'm Nick Payton and dialling into the studio is exercise physiologist Ray Kelly. Now, Ray, before we get into your own initiative, which you have designed and implemented yourself, the Too Deadly for Diabetes Lifestyle Program, there's a comment that you have made recently, and this is for our listeners because we've got a, a listenership which goes all around the world. We've got listeners in America and the UK, and some of our listeners may not understand the situation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in Australia today and some of the issues that they're facing um, as compared to their non-Indigenous counterparts, particularly the comment you made where you said Type 2 diabetes didn't exist in Australia prior to colonisation. Yeah, that's right. Well, look, even, let's just say, the, the first ever government report, or the national report on Indigenous health didn't get done until 1979. Okay, so prior to that, there was little notes taken at different um, properties and sort of collated around the country. But the first ever report, even, even as recent as 1979, showed that type 2 diabetes was pretty much non-existent in any community that was still living out of town. So what wasn't living on the, on Western ways. And that, that was as recent as that. And there's been a number of studies that have shown that over the years. And this has all come about, the increases come about the same time that the big increases come with Western populations. And I might just say too that at, at those stages, those, those reports that were done, that was comparing to the current Europeans in Australia who had higher rates than Aboriginal people who lived more traditionally. Now, with colonisation, you know, access to rivers for fishing, access to food, you know, um, grazing um, animals that sort of um, ruin the, the, the soil and sort of you know, fence lines so you, you can't sort of get in anyway. Changes in laws to stop people from doing things. You know, it's the same old thing. And it has a major impact on being able to live more traditionally, even if people wanted to. But the good thing is, is the, the way we do things, you know, you don't need to live traditionally. You can sort of put it into a more Western style and then you'll still get great results. But what I want people to understand is, you know, this isn't part of our past. Like it's kind of accepted now because of it. we're a couple of generations in with diabetes that people think, oh, it's just an Aboriginal thing. You know, we're just more predisposed. Well, 
it, it really wasn't around. It wasn't around much at all. And and the corresponding heart disease as well. And even you speak to some of the people that live right out, you know, they'll tell you like growing up, they thought that cancer was a white man's disease. They just never saw yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yep. And, and it's the same with diabetes. You know, like you would have type one diabetes, which was rare, but type two diabetes, you know, people were active. People were working, you know, stock on the stock land, you know, on horses working around with stock. You know, they were living on, um, you know, good natural foods through hunting. That's right. You know, it, it was, uh, it was, it was um, a very healthy way, and and that, that's sort of what we're going to be looking more towards. And you know, you don't have to just go with diabetes. Like you have a look at how much knowledge has been taken and and discarded mm. over the years. When you look at Aboriginal people living here for forever, you know, in one of the harshest communities. Like you imagine when. Um, yeah, the Europeans first come over. It must have been a real, uh, a real challenge for them. You mm. know, just access to food and water, but no issue for everyone else. And things like you just said, all the introduced stock, all the introduced grazing, milk didn't even exist here prior to colonisation. So certainly, milk in itself has got to almost be playing a part in, um, you know, how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health can be affected by introduced. Um, ingredients, if you will. Yeah, and it's, I think it's also just the the amounts. Like you know, especially with processed food these days, you can just get so much more calories and preservatives and all these added things into your body very, very quickly, and you can consume so much of it. And, and the interesting thing is, like you know, you always hear about oh, you know, like red meat's bad for you and all this sort of stuff, but. I always think back to the studies that have done on communities, and, and we know with Aboriginal communities, there's hundreds of nations. So what, what people living on different sections are going to be different. But what, what the most consistent thing was, that was that 65% of food intake was from animal products. So, And you could argue that you know, the, the beef and, and sheep today are very different to the lean, um, unfarmed animals uh, that uh, people had access to back then. But there was relatively no heart disease back then and, and chronic disease. So, you know, there's a lot of assumed knowledge that's just passed down. And I think we, we need to really be looking deeper at um, what we know uh, is good for Aboriginal people. Absolutely. Now, Ray, your initiative, Too Deadly for Diabetes, um, an amazing lifestyle program, um, this is provided pretty much through Aboriginal medical services in rural and remote New South Wales. And it seems as though through all of your engagement now uh, with local Indigenous community and healthcare providers, you've been able to identify all of these obstacles that we've just spoken about, and you've been able to you've been able to come up with a strategy and program um, which has resulted in, as you said, substantial improvements in people with type two diabetes and the consequent reductions in their medication use. So, tell me a bit about the Two Deadly for Diabetes program. Yeah, I guess the, the first point to make, mate, is that uh, we rarely go into an, an easy environment. You know, when we're usually coming in, you know, the, the diabetes rates are high. You know, there might be poor access to food, um, might even be you know, poor engagement with the medical centres and, and things. So we're, we're really starting from scratch sometimes. But the reason why it's so effective, and look, all the research shows that the best outcomes come when, commu- when it's driven by community. So, you know, community has to be at the forefront. And 
it's, it's no coincidence that um, our program you know, performs much better with stronger community connections and certainly um, Aboriginal health workers leading the way, their local uh, Aboriginal health workers. So when we, go, when we turn up to a location, we sit down with the staff first and we go through what are the main obstacles in town, what are the main issues for the local community, and that could range between access to fresh food. You know, some, some towns, you know, don't get fresh stocks through uh, unless it's like once a week, and even then it might be the size of a small bedroom in an apartment, you know, like in a yeah, flat. Yep. Um, and for others, it might be, you know, no, no access to gyms, but it's very hot, or it might be just even that they have locums coming through so they don't get access to consistent health care. Mm. So if you are getting people to perform well in a lifestyle program with losing weight, well, you need someone who can reduce their medications well too. And a locum, someone that's like a, a doctor that's just going to be there for a number of weeks, they're going to be less likely to do that. So there's all these things we've got to come up with strategies for. So we come up with strategies. And just over time throughout all the different communities, we just sort of hone it and we listen to the community. So sometimes people will say, oh, you know, what about this? Have you thought about that? And sometimes it's not possible, but other times you go, you know what? <laughs> this person's right. We can do that and let's implement it across the across the board. So we're we're always improving. We're always looking to yeah, make the program better and easier. That, that's the key. Make it simple, easy to understand because this is one of the big obstacles too is that health literacy across Australia, not just in Aboriginal communities, but across Australia, isn't great. So a lot of people don't understand what they need to do. There's no shortage of information. Like people get given information at all their medical visits, whether they see the dietitian or the physiologist or the GP or the endocrinologist, they get information. They just don't know what it means to them yes. and their life. How do they put it into their life? Or do they completely understand what they've been told? Yeah, that's right. So what we do is we make sure it's in layman's terms, it's simple talk. Yep. Um, the food's utilised are stuff that they like, that they can see themselves eating. They're not new ingredients that they've got to try and that they're going to taste once and go, yeah, it's no good. Yep. So it's just normal foods. Yep. And, all, and also they know what to do tomorrow. So, okay, so you're going to exercise. What are you going to do? You, you, what are you going to eat? And so we go through everything so they totally understand. And when people understand what they need to do, they can follow it. It, it sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But mm. this is one of the big problems. And so once they follow it, they see their sugars reduced within days. And then they see the scale start to drop. And what happens with that? They get confidence and they just keep moving forward. It's, it's great. And, and Aboriginal people are really good responders and this is what you don't hear. You know, if you look at the research, you always hear, oh, you know, poor attendance and, you know, and, and recruitment problems and all that. Well, as far as recruitment, I say, if you can't get the numbers, then you're probably not providing a service that people need or they don't understand why they need it. And as far as attendance, well, if you provide a program that uh, people are getting results with, they're going to turn up, and we see that. So, Ray, look, we've been talking about the Too Deadly for Diabetes program. We heard from Margot, um, who was kind enough to give you guys a testimony. Um, you guys recorded Margot at the start of her 10-week program, and then you recorded her at the end of the program. And our listeners heard um, the painful experience that Margot's been going through with her diabetes at the start of the podcast here. We're now going to take a listen to... Margot, uh, and this is now after taking part in the program. Let's have a listen. Now I feel healthier. I feel better. I'm more active. I got more energy to do things. 
to go places, walk around, you know, go down the river walking with the grannies. I can do all of that where I didn't do it before. You know, I, I just totally ignored my diabetes for, for a long time. And it was just you doing the visual stuff and just talking in plain English and being very positive towards me that might, you know, help me to actually to do this. I know what I'm doing now. Ray, the, the difference here that we've just heard in Margot is incredible. Yeah, mate, yeah, it was great. And, oh, geez, I remember that day. It was March the 2nd, 2018. I, I won't forget it. Like, it was such, it made such an impact. You could just sort of, she just wanted help. And, and to be honest, I had to fight for her to get on the program because some of the staff there were like, oh, no, she's too ill. And, and I said, we're an AMS. We, you know, we run, we, we run programs for people that aren't well. But that's the whole thing. We just need to provide more support. And then you see, you see what happens when you do that. And this is part of that whole clinical inertia, you know. And she just thrived. Like, it didn't take long where she was flying. And let me tell you, she was. She just got a ramp put into a house because she couldn't walk up steps, and she was looking to buy a motor scooter to get around town. She's fifty nine years of age, you know, like yep. way too young for that sort of thing. And I think you made you made a really good point there, Ray. Um, th- that wasn't somebody telling Margot what they think she needs, because had it gone down that road, she wouldn't have done the program. It was more asking Margot what does she think she needs to help her. And it seems as though by you guys asking Margot that, she's told you that she thinks that the program could work for her. And two years later, we can we can hear the change in Margot's voice. We can hear the things she just said that are so much different to when we heard her at the start of the podcast. You know, hearing her talking about wanting to get out to do some exercise and wanting to change her eating habits. I think Margot, as an example, it's just a, a beautiful story. Yeah, look, she, she, she is a great example too because, um, you know, she, like everyone, you, know, you don't believe it could happen. Like, it just sounds too far-fetched. She's on four or five injections of insulin a day. Her sugars are over 17 a lot of the times. You know, she, she, she's lived with diabetes for 30 years. So at her age, she, she's not really deep down believing it's going to happen, but you've got to have hope. And, she, and that's what she did, and, and she just did. And so... And I was, you know, contacting her every day for the first couple of weeks because we need to make sure that she was getting her medications reduced right. So I was sort of referring her through to the GP to uh, to have a look at her her uh, medications to adjust. And you know, she just thrived once she started going. And to be honest, she started jogging on her own. I had to pull her back. I think it was about week seven or something. She she starts jogging like <laughs> shuffle runs around the park. I'm saying, hey, hey, hold on. Good up. on you, Margot. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. So, but look, you know. She, she's going great guns. I speak to her uh, here and there. HbA1c still good, still off insulin, um, and yeah, and she also got off another diabetes medication about six weeks after that uh, ten week video. Well, all you mob out there, don't forget we've got Ray Kelly in Australia's Health Revolution with Dr. Michael Mosley, which is airing next Wednesday on SBS on October thirteen. Ray Kelly, it's been an absolute honour speaking to you here in the Black Room. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks, mate. It's, it's great to uh, have your support and we've just got to get that message out. If you would like further information on Ray Kelly's Too Deadly for Diabetes lifestyle program, you can find links in the show information right there on your screen. 
Boogle Bear, thank you for listening once again to the Black Room News Podcast. Don't forget to grab our current edition of the Koori Mao newspaper on sale now for the latest stories and articles focusing on the issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including a wrap-up of the AFL and NRL Grand Finals held over the weekend. I'm Nick Payton, and catch you in our next episode of The Black Room in a fortnight. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description. <laughs>